Welcome to the now playing Halloween retrospective series. Only trying to give America a good show. Hosted by Stuart. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up. Arnie. I prayed that he would burn in hell, but in my heart I knew that hell would not have him. And Brock. One must remember not to be fooled by his calm, unassuming facade. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? Due to the current release of Rob Zombie's new Halloween movie, H2, we will be watching and reviewing all of the films in the Halloween series. These eyes will deceive you. A warning, these conversations will be spoiler-filled, and as the movies are R-rated, there may be some objectionable language. Every other word you say is either hell or shit or damn. Trick or treat, motherfucker! Today we're talking about Halloween 2, starring Donald Pleasance and Jamie Lee Curtis. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart, I'm in L.A. And Arnie, host of Star Wars Action News, the Star Wars Collecting Podcast you can find at SWActionNews.com, as well as Republic Forces Radio Network, Season 2 of The Clone Wars, coming soon at RepublicForces.com. Happy to be back on Now Playing Talking Halloween. All right, anyway, so we're here talking about Halloween 2, the sequel to the very successful Halloween. Now, this movie came out in 1981, three years later, and I could be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure I'm not. This was not a planned sequel. This was clearly because there was a, a successful first movie and they made an interesting choice in how they went about the plot of this movie in that it takes place the exact same night and i thought that was a very interesting choice so we should probably get into this right away with the beginning of this movie what we talked about last time was the movie opened up with that great halloween music this time i had a giant smile on my face they open up with mr sandman which i thought was just insanely fun what the hell is up with that no you can't I'm not going to allow you to dog this part. This is my introduction to musical irony. This is the first time I ever saw a movie with ironic music in it. They do it all the time nowadays, you know, Tarantino, and and it's just, it's done all the time, where you play a song that is ironically the opposite of the mood of what you're watching. But when I was a kid, having already seen Halloween and watched this movie, and Mr. Sandman came on, it blew me away. Honest to God. I was like, I can't, I don't, I couldn't even process it. It was just so weird. I thought it was brilliant. Yes. A a joyful, innocent song like this could have such a dark reading to it. Because instantly, Mr. Sandman, we we know that we're talking about Michael. And uh, who would think such a thing, uh, listening to that song, that it's about uh, the embodiment of evil coming to kill you in the hospital? Not only that, not only that, but right after the song is finished playing, they, they show the ending of the first movie, right? Because, in the, and what I took from the song being used is that they went through this horrific event. All they want is, and listen to the lyrics of the song, you know, um, give me a dream, make it the sweetest that I've ever seen. Get me away from this horrible thing. Mr. Sandman 
man, take me away. I want to. I just want to go to sleep. I just want to have happy thoughts. And that's mm-hmm. also something that creeped in for me too. I thought it was really smart. Then they go right into the B recap of of the first movie, which is, I guess, at the time without VHS being as popular yet, they needed to do to remind people. Although, why on earth did they show Michael falling from the window onto a crash mat instead of just showing what they showed before? That extra shot was a little <laughs> unneeded. Um, and you saw the mat the mat bounce, which I. <laughs> I couldn't help but notice. And then they go on with the rest of the movie. But I thought that was um, a nice reminder and a nice juxtaposition with the music they just played. Well, it is, it is as the title bills it, more of the night he came home. The original was billed as the night he came home. It's more of the night he came home. Well, at this point, everyone would like to go to sleep. They'd like Mr. Sandman to come, sleep this thing off. But nope, we've got uh, several more hours until daybreak. And uh, Lori, poor Lori, who was hauled away or was about to be hauled away for some therapy and treatment is is only just getting started. Now, why did they show Pleasance, the, Dr. Loomis, looking at the imprint in the ground? It seemed to me some of those scenes, or I should say some of the edits in the beginning of this movie, seemed to be almost like leftovers from the first movie they just threw in here. And the movie proper, the new footage started once she got to the hospital. I could be completely wrong about that. I'm not really sure. Is anyone any information on that? Because, I, I mean, it, as soon as you see Lori at the hospital, it is... 100% clear she's wearing a wig. It is clearly a bad wig. I could not take my eyes off it. I had to look it up to confirm it afterwards because I was like, are they going to call out this wig? Because it clearly was a horrible wig. Um, well, here's the thing. I thought that in the hospital, the wig looked fine. It was when she was being loaded into the ambulance that it looked like a Spencer's Gifts fright wig. <laughs> After that point, I was with it. But during that scene where her hair is supposed to look mussed up, I mean, I've seen better ones on my own Halloween on the doorstep. Well, you well, you know she. We do find out in this one that she's biologically related to Michael. I thought she was doing like a quaff uh, recall to hit the that flop of his hair and the mask. I mean, it has the same kind of artificial quality to it. Uh, yeah, not a good wig, not a good wig. But she had short hair as she did through much of the eighties, and uh, they had to do something quick. So she was not going to be able to grow those tendrils back in time. They did what they had to. It's striking, I'll tell you that. You, you can't stop looking at Jamie in this one. And she does look different. And not just because it's three years since the last one they filmed. Um, yes. so, <laughs> so the movie opens up with the music again. And they had the, the skeleton mat, uh, go into the pumpkin, which I thought was interesting but weird. But the opening shot of this movie, again, kind of mirrors the opening shot of the last one. And he's wandering around the house this time. And I thought that was a cool idea to get us right back in the mood of watching a Halloween movie. Of course, they also go right away to the killing, which is unlike the last Halloween movie, I thought. But they really tried to give you the idea of this is more of the same and we're going to try to make it as close as possible. So it begs the question, why didn't Carpenter direct it? It does beg that question. He was busy doing something else, actually. He wrote it. Escape from New York. He had the opportunity. I mean, like anything, you have the opportunity to do something cool and original and different. You can call shots. People are going to give you money to do something. Why would you repeat yourself when you have the opportunity, when all these doors are open to you? Stuart, uh, he wrote the music for this. He produced it, and he wrote the screenplay with Deborah Hill again. So why is all that different, all that being there, why wouldn't he just direct it again? Because the guy who directed this movie was mirroring a lot of the same stuff that was in the first Hollywood movie, what made the first Halloween movie so successful. They tried to recreate that as much as possible here. They just changed a couple of elements of it, in my opinion. 
you can clearly tell it's not the same director and they had more money, but it, it, they certainly tried to replicate a lot of the shots or the same kind of ideas of the shots that made the first movie work so well. What I read is that basically had to do it. It was, you know, he owed a favor. He had to do what he did. He even came in and did some reshoots. I think it was like three days of reshoots that had to be done because he wasn't satisfied with the original cut. So everything huh. he did was something he didn't necessarily want to do. It was more obligation than this is where he wanted to be right now. He'd been moving on to other stuff. Yeah, he was working on Escape from New York, a much bigger scale movie, a different genre, not a horror movie. And yeah, I don't think that he felt the, uh, like some directors do, like this was his series. I think he saw it as a one-off movie and that they were, Dino De Laurentiis was calling for a sequel was, was a financial decision. Um, that said, uh, he didn't want it to, he didn't just put his name on out there. He, to, you know, on anything. He wanted it to have the same quality and character that the original did. I think they got close. My feeling is that uh, it, it is sort of an unnecessary sequel and doesn't do too much different from the last one, but uh, it's still well-crafted and, you know, we're still dealing with Jamie Lee Curtis, and that helps too. Going into this movie, my memory of it, because I haven't seen this in a long time, my memory is that because it picks up the minute the first one ends, that it creates a duology that might as well just be viewed all the time as one three-hour opus of horror. And in watching it, that is not the case. The quality <laughs> is so much less on this one. And, you know, the first movie, Stuart, when we had that conversation, you kept telling me that I might prefer horror that focuses on the killer and this movie focused on Jamie, the first one. The second one, I don't know where it focuses on because Jamie's drugged up in a hospital off screen for a good hour as we hop back and forth between horny nurses and Donald Pleasance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. Donald was starting to take a more pivotal role in this one. It's hard to know exactly why that is, but it's a lot more Donald and. You know, what's yeah. funny about Donald in this when the first scene, we see him in the car. I thought he was drunk uh, because he was I have in my notes here is Donald drunk. And I know we have a William Shatner mask in this movie. Is he taking cues from William Shatner's acting? Because I thought he was so over the top in the beginning of this movie. And as it went on, he caught he calmed down. I don't understand what he was doing. Maybe because he of the experience he just had at the house with Jamie was. His, I mean, I can't only project what I think he was thinking because all I know is it was not the same character we had watched the previous movie and later on in this movie. It was a whole different thing. And he's so much more over the top when talking about Michael because in the first movie he's basically saying, you know, this guy is evil and should be locked away. But now he's like, it's a force of nature. It is going to kill us all. <laughs> Well, like every sequel, like every sequel, they want to recapture what was done before and keep it exactly the same, but, but, dot, 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 we got to do it bigger. And, and that's that bigger and better. And that is every sequel. So, yes, everything about this feels hopped up. And some of that is to the movie's betterment. And some of it is to its detriment. More money means that there's more actors and more extras and a more believable sense that this is a populated community. <laughs> and the lighting, rather than whereas the first movie can sometimes just look down light underexposed, this one they felt like there was much more control over the camera work 
and things were lit properly all the time. Pleasance, I don't think, is a particularly great actor, and I would not bet against the fact that he was drunk for the entire shoot. Um, I think that <laughs> was probably very likely. You know you're in trouble from the get-go because the, one of his first exchanges is with a neighborhood that comes out and says, I've been trick-or-treated to death tonight. And Donald gets this, yes, Shatner-esque quality to his face. and like, you don't know what death is. Well, well, Donald, neither do you. You're still alive. We're all still alive. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what that means. It's just one of those lines that, that's just, just, you know, overheated camp. And you're just like, oh, it just gets you to roll the eyes and, and realize that he's going to be this character from this point on in the whole series. He's this over-the-top, holier-than-thou. There are trace elements of this in Halloween. I would, would like to say that I don't think Donald is, is doing a, anything really different than he did in the first movie, only that we're spending a lot more time with him, and he's probably uh, got a lot more access to alcohol. Well, when we <laughs> talked last time, we were saying how what he did was really give emphasis to Michael's being evil. Here, he needed more to do. He needed to be the detective who mm -hmm. is going after Michael because we never now know he's evil. He's been shot six times and proceeds to go right next door and uh, rob an old woman of her knife and then go kill some random teenager. I mean, mm -hmm. we know he's unstoppable now, so we don't need the big ominous warning. So now Pleasance had to transform into even more of the hunter of the Van Helsing. Yeah, it's probably a little bit more uh, Donald than I needed, but it, I was glad he finally was taking an active role because for the first movie, he largely spends all of his time saying why won't anybody listen to me in the dark and now he's commanding in many respects the police investigation he's the one that improperly identifies michael and <laughs> gets uh laurie's boyfriend or potential boyfriend killed you noticed that was ben tramer <laughs> yes <laughs> the one laurie had a crush movie, on yes in the first movie laurie finally admits to one of her gal pals that she in fact does like this boy she's very timid she's very shy about all of it this ben tramer and we will eventually find out that Ben Tramer bought the same mask as Michael Myers, bringing that parallel all the more closer that I was talking about. And because he's walking around in the town square, uh, Donald Pleasance points him out and in a very awkward uh, action moment, very uncharacteristic mm. of the whole rest of the series. Uh, there is a fiery car crash and Ben Tramer is uh, burned to bits on the spot. I thought that was really odd that not only did he have the Michael Myers mask, but correct me if I'm wrong, he was wearing a mechanics jumpsuit as well. How the hell did he know that, you know, that's a quite, quite a coincidence. It was like the... a stunt double got killed, you know? <laughs> I mean, I guess that was, it was the popular character of the year, I guess. I don't know why everyone wanted to be the faceless guy uh, in the jumpsuit, uh, but I don't know if you showed up in a party dressed as that what you would tell people you were but 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 michael in the first movie picked up the jumpsuit from the mechanic if i correctly remember oh uh, and it, how interesting you're right you are correct i do forget that component because it's such a throwaway death from the first one but there is a guy with a mechanic truck who's murdered and thrown in the bushes and i guess he happened to be the same uh, dimensions as michael because michael wears that jumpsuit for the rest of the time i don't know why ben tramer's in the jumpsuit i just know that it's funny <laughs> <laughs> 
I just well, think it's funny that the one guy that Lori has a crush on has to die a fiery death that night for looking exactly like the boogeyman. Well, fortunately, there is a second guy who she can crush on, the oh-so-Alan Alda 70s sensitive guy who is the EMT. Yes. Jimmy. Jimmy, Jimmy. the EMT. College. He's in college, and yet he's there. It's His brother is in high school, and he, he somehow knows about Lori. It's all very nebulous and, and not really logical, but yes, we have to have, uh, in a slasher movie, the idea that there is a romantic relationship between the victim and the man that is unable to protect her from the unstoppable evil. And in this case, it is Jimmy the EMT. Now, did um, you guys pick up who Jimmy the EMT is? His name is Lance Guest. Did you recognize him? Was he in The Last Starfighter? He was the star of The Last Starfighter. Exactly. I thought so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. But uh, I thought it was really cool because as far as I know, Lance Guest's career began and ended with The Last Starfighter. So to yeah. see him here, I was happy for him. And um, while I'm on the topic, I saw in the credits at the end of the movie, a man named Dana Carvey was in this as a something or other in EMT. Yes, this was his big screen debut, although I did not see him and I did not bother trying to freeze frame for it. But yeah, he this was his initial. I didn't even see him on screen either. I just saw his name in the credits. I'm like, he's barely there. He's, he's there. There's an opening shot where it's kind of an awkward uh, transition in the sense that Donald Pleasance is only just getting in the car and driving away, you know, a- after Laurie has been taken away and Michael is, is killing someone in a this neighboring house. Well, the media already gets there. Somehow they've gotten wind of this, and the full-blown media is there with news crews broadcasting live from the Myers house. Dana's in the background there milling about. Not much of a debut. Well, there's, we talked about this already a, t- a tad. The movie takes place primarily in the hospital where Jamie Lee Curtis is... Okay. Convalescing? Yeah. Just <laughs> and then going into a coma and then getting out of the coma and then having dreams. And, and then alternately, they have Donald Pleasance running around trying to find Michael Myers outside. But a lot of it takes place in this hospital with a bunch of characters in a hospital. And it, it kind of gets to be what we're used to, I guess you could think of it in that sense, of horror slash for films of, oh, here, here's the place where all the young people are who are going to get killed. Um, Correct. Yeah. And, and you so, always have to confine. Confinement is a, is a part of the genre. You can't have people wandering around a whole town. That's frustrating. You need to have the feeling that they are entrapped somewhere and that they are being picked off. And just because the fact that she was so injured in the last one meant that it was going to take place in a highly <laughs> unpopulated, uh, underlit hospital where there is nobody on staff even though it's Halloween night and uh, there are no parents home and their children are cutting up pumpkins and you would know that somebody is going to have to be hauled to the emergency room for cutting off their thumb while trying to mess with the jack-o'-lantern. Nope. Well, there was the little boy who had the razor blade in his mouth from the gander. Yes, that was a good little bit. Well, you know, that is one of those uh, big superstitions is that there's going to be the friendly neighbor that puts razor blades in your apple and I, I distinctly remember my parents throwing away anything that was a baked good or an apple or anything like that from my trick-or-treat bag because, of course, the neighbor really wanted to poison me. <laughs> And so glad we went there for their house again, year after yes. year. <laughs> right, yes. At no point were the police taking action to arrest the man or, God forbid, stop him from giving out more razor-bladed apples. We're only following the child and his bloody mouth. It's a great bit. Stuart, you mentioned something, the underlit hospital. I have a note here saying, are there no lights in this hospital? <laughs> Clearly, there are machines that are running. 
There right. are. It's a hospital. It has to work. People would notice if the electricity was out of a hospital. Right. But yet, all the hallways have no lighting. And no. so, this movie asks a lot of us that the first one earned. This one, I think, wants us to go along with in that this is the kind of movie it is. Just go along with it. I, I can't because it doesn't let me get into the movie as well as the first one did. We talked about last time how there wasn't a lot of killings for a long stretch and it really was suspense and building up the ambiance and, and, and building up everything for the ending. Here, we have killings right off the bat and we have a whole different kind of killing. We have a more violent killing. And, and so when they get to things like a deserted, dark hospital, why would I go along with that? And you have to question, even though they tried to emulate the first movie so much, where they failed, they failed big time and didn't earn the audience cred, for me anyway, that, that they earned with me the first time. Yeah, it, it requires a, a larger leap of, of faith. What was so uh, enjoyable about Halloween, particularly when I saw it in its original years, uh, was that it had a reality to it. This one does not have the same reality to it. It is much more of a boilerplate slasher film. Uh, that said, I, I still found myself enjoying it. I felt like there was still... Um, a Hitchcockian quality to the setups that there was still interesting moments and some suspenseful parts. I have to agree. They also, last time we talked about Halloween, we mentioned that the camera would linger and they would have these long, long shots and you're wondering when Michael was going to pop up. It did a lot of that here and it worked very well. I remember one point they had Jamie Lee in the bed and they had the other nurse talking to Jamie Lee and they always had the door to her room wide open. Mm. And you're just waiting to see Michael walk past. And I don't remember he did, but they always kept the door in the shot. And I thought that was a really smart move because that's how they were dicking with us last time. And they, mm -hmm. so when the security guard is going through those doors in the storage unit, whatever, one by one, not seeing Michael, not seeing Michael. And, of course, he pops up from behind the door eventually. But they really did that kind of thing very well. The hot tub scene, the same thing. Like they always had that kind of – when is it going to happen? When is when is Michael going to come and be behind you? And they were playing with that constantly. So yes, I agree. They did have some suspenseful shots, and that was great. But with the suspenseful shots, and they did that setup, when they had the gruesome kill at the end of it, did you feel it took away from the suspense they were building up? Uh, well, let's talk specifically about the hot tub scene that you mentioned. There's a nurse that's kind of uh, sleeping around with, you know, there's always that character at, at the hospital who's lecturing who's giving all the, the, the women the eye and she consents to him and they turn on what's supposed to be like a therapeutic bath and they're turning it into some kind of, you know, hot tub sex thing. There's a nice way that that's set up in which we see him killed in the background yes. behind some sheets and she has no idea and is prepping the water and, and you know, it's, it's not dissimilar from that kill we talked about where Michael appears as a, a ghost with the sheet and the glasses on and the girl has no idea that, in fact, who she thinks is getting – that she's about to sleep with is about to stick a knife in her. That it ends with her being boiled and that the water temperature gets turned up to the point that she – her face is, is, is boiled and burned to a crisp. 
Well, that is where the series is starting to experiment with how do we give them an original kill? How do we spice this up? I think I would prefer if Michael had an M.O. and stuck to it. If he just kept using a knife, that's good enough for me. Uh, I think that's his character. I don't think he's sitting around uh, thinking about uh, all the ingenious ways that he can slaughter a woman. Right. It seems to be impolation and stabbing is he's getting something out of that. And well, uh, he would also strangle them a lot and he strangled quite a few people in this one if I remember he strangled the boyfriend behind the glass while she's you know in the foreground which was a, as you said a great kill and then she had him behind him and, you know kissing his hand and that was really fun but when they ended it with her being scalded and Michael's hand wasn't scalded just her right. face right. and uh, even if he was wearing gloves he was still well his he's hand superhuman was... he can get shot six times he's not gonna blister yeah, I hope not <laughs> yeah. if he could take six bullets and certainly he can take heat um, right. but I just found those kind of kills to be so over the top from what they were the setups that were so even right in that particular scene too with such a clever kill behind her and then having her die so gruesomely i thought that was out of quote-unquote character for what we have already seen in the previous movie but again you're right they made a choice yeah and, and they have more money and they and they and they decided to use it that way i mean they had those the needles in the eyes you see the one guy with a needle already hanging in there and then you see her second death we actually see the needle going in her eye that kind of thing is just i mean i know arnie has a thing against eyes right like you know that's just creepy you know i want to know where Michael learned all these medical skills because there's the one person who Michael taps their vein and drains their blood. Now, again, Stewart in the last movie said, I can watch a lot of movies but not fly a plane. I work in a hospital, but I couldn't draw your blood. I couldn't hit that vein. So how is Michael well, he has spent to- all this time in, in, in a sanitarium, and I'm sure that he's had a lot taken out of him. So he's probably Maybe. a little bit. He's probably had a lot more track marks than he has logged in at miles in a car. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but um, but yes, we are now entering the realm in which the killer is supernatural, nothing can kill him, and he is going more and more over the top with his methodology and how to kill women. And it's becoming a little bit more of a, well, like what we think of a slasher movie is, uh, sort of a parody of it, rather than the essential thing. Well, this is um, the first one, right? This is like one of the first ones of this of the genre, right? Friday the Thirteenth well, came out a year before. Friday the Thirteenth came out in eighty. We were already on Friday the Thirteenth Part uh, Two or Three by yes. this point. Usually, they crank those second ones to a successful horror movie out within a year. Usually, certainly these days, it's like we get the next one out like that. You can bet this time next Halloween we'll have the next one. Well, this took three years. Three years in between the original's release and building up to be the cult classic. And the sequel. And by that time, exactly. We've had Friday the 13th. We've had The Boogeyman. We've had a lot of them at this point. So there, the formula was already in place. They already okay. were aware of how Halloween was being perceived and emulated. And so I felt like, yeah, they were competing. They were definitely starting to compete. They almost did this one in 3D. No. Yeah, yeah. that's what I read is they l- researched 3D, but they just didn't want to spend the money or the time or the technology. Wow. So well. they, that's how much they were competing is now that Jason's on the block, how can they keep Michael fresh? And they almost went to 3D for that. Yeah. First, we should yeah. add first before Friday the 13th Part 3 did that uh, because they would have beaten Friday the 13th to that punch. Yes. But don't you know you always have to make part three in 3D? Jaws did it. Friday the 13th did it. It's just so perfect. Just because um, it's got a three in the title? 
Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Hell yeah. Ice, Ice Age 3. Ice Age 3 this year came out with a 3D. You're right. You're right. Okay. Um, one other thing they did completely different this time as well, and we talked about this last time and how effective it was, they showed Michael's eyeballs through the mask. And I really question why they did that, especially since we're talking about how supernatural the guy is. Wouldn't it have been better to keep him completely without human traits at all? But yet they show his eyeball at least twice while he kills somebody. It was a very interesting choice, one I don't think I agree with. I agree with you. I didn't actually, I must admit, I didn't really notice that. But the effective scenes with Michael that I recall are the scene where he's like underground in the, and they have a red light in there and you can not see his eyes and he's coming towards her or in the park parking lot he's always most effective when we get the sense that he is a hollow vessel that he is just a mask that that underneath it there is nothing but evil we don't want to think of him as a person with human traits it does right i will disagree with you on this because when i really think of michael myers one of the things i think about is he does this in the first movie and the second movie is he kills somebody i think in the first movie he killed that boyfriend held him up on a wall and then he just kind of cocks his head yes and yes. the thing that i think about that is he is human but he doesn't understand humanity and he is seeing this and he's just kind of almost so cold and detached almost scientific about it and when i saw his eyes in part two I didn't really pay a whole lot of attention to the fact that I was seeing eyes for the first time. I didn't realize that. But what I thought was it is again showing us him witnessing his own crime. The same way in the first movie we saw him looking at his knife as he killed his sister. Now instead of being a first person point of view, we are the observer watching him watch the death. But it's still so detached and again creepy. Yeah, yeah I agree with you. There's another relationship going on there, which is that a there is this evil incarnate that is the shape that is stalking Lori, but you're right. It is it, the vessel of it is a human being who has a curiosity and some trace elements of humanity to him. They almost drop almost all reference to that in this one. There is no unmasking. Uh, right. There is nothing really learned more about his methodology and what he's getting out of this. But we do, of course, have the important subplot about Lori and him being biologically related. How'd you guys feel about that? I felt that was unnecessary in this one. I think that in the first movie, it would have provided great motivation for why Lori and her friends were targeted by Michael instead of just the randomness of Lori happened to be walking by. But in this one, it seemed like they brought it up and were like, Eureka, she's his sister. And then it <laughs> made no point, though. It's like, OK, that was unnecessary by this point. You know, I think the reason it's in here is because why else would Michael Myers follow this woman to the hospital? Otherwise, he would just keep killing other random people. Right. You know? So True. I think that's what they maybe need that for. And, and you know, you mentioned before uh, in the last podcast about how all the cliches of horror movies and the first one kind of gave birth to a lot of them. Well, isn't this the one with the long lost relative? This is the first time we've seen this because they didn't do yeah. that in Friday the 13th until later on. It's always a cheap motivation for anybody for have some sort of relationship to the bad guy or the person you don't understand. It's almost to the point where I always suspect it, you know, <laughs> when I'm watching things now that 
there's a family connection. In I didn't even occur to me that would happen in this movie at all. It came out of left field, but I can see to make the motivation for Michael go to the hospital all, I can see why they used it. I'm not saying it's It amazes me how unaware you are of this whole series, Brock, <laughs> because I'm like, I just thought that that was part of the pantheon of knowledge is Laurie Strode is Michael's sister. And the fact that it wasn't in the first one was so astounding to me that anyone would be shocked by it coming up is just, it's like, oh, really? Vader's Luke's father? I mean, it is that obvious to me. You know, it's, just... it's funny you should say that. I was on the phone with my mother today and she's saying, what are you doing today? I'm like, well, I'm recording this and this and that. And she said, really? I'm like, you know, it's really fun for me to watch these movies because I, growing up, we never had horror movies in the house. It was just not something that our family watched or, I'm not saying we didn't condone them. It just wasn't something we, as a family or was there anything we ever wanted to see? And so, um, as I mentioned during other podcasts we've done with this series, uh, other series, I-, I watched the first Nightmare on Elm Street. I first watched the first Friday the 13th. It's just out of curiosity. I never got the Halloween. I-, I-, I, got- I watched the first Dirty Harry. I watched all the first movies of these series to see what the big deal is. And, and I never got around the Halloween. So yeah, I'm really am enjoying seeing these things for the first time because we never had them. And, and horror movies, to me, it's just an interesting idea about movies now. I guess I don't want to be too intellectual about this whole thing. But for me, it's really kind of fun to see a movie like Halloween 2 and I guess the first one to really see the birth of all these things that I know when I see the Scream movies as cliche. Because I, when I watch the Scream movies, I know those cliches because they're pop culture. But and but this Laurie being Michael Myers' sister thing, I guess didn't. I guess that's so far down the list of the pop culture things I'm supposed to know, quote unquote, that I never got that <laughs> far down the list. I think Darth Vader and Citizen Kane, Sled, and all that kind of stuff is higher up. You know what I mean? This Laurie connection to Michael Myers, eh, it's pretty low. It's you know, it's one of those things that explains everything and nothing at the same time. <laughs> uh, well on said. one hand, on one on one hand, we see from the very opening shot of the original movie that Michael doesn't want to kill everyone. He he wants to kill his sister. And so that we understand there's a pathological need to hunt down. Well, he kills that random neighbor, though. Not the old person, but then he goes to the young person. He wants to kill teenage girls is who he wants well, to Well, I'm talking about what we originally established before anything else about Michael Myers. Is that he is a character that is not in need to kill the boyfriend for doing that to his sister. Or to kill his parents for being authority figures or anything else. That it is something about his need to... To process his sister's sexuality and that that is established from the very first shot and then it, it it's re-represented through all of his other quote-unquote relationships with other women that he goes through that Lori is biological to him that that might be another primal relationship I don't know if this is incest angst. I'm not sure what therapist, ther- uh, you know, uh, psychological tools you would use to apply what's going on here. But we'll have to see what Loomis did. Right. But it sort of explains everything. And yet it does open up a whole lot of, well, what does what does that mean? What where are the parents? For one thing. Uh, wait a and, minute. And, wait a minute. I, I go back to my swinger party. Theory. Yeah. Uh, my my question is if he's the if he's the doctor for Michael Myers he doesn't even know about the sealed documents about Lori being related he's the doctor isn't that information he really could have used to diagnose well that's why he was upset that nobody told yeah him. they they slipped that one in in really really fast about like oh there's something that you don't know about that we are just about to drop on you so that you can give us those bug eyes and you know have a yes. couple more bruise. and in the reveal of the movie obviously because if he had known it would have come up in the first movie right yes so. Yeah. 
definitely. Right. He, he would have gone to her side, not the house. But more to the point, let's follow the genealogy here. The parents had Michael, six years old. He murders the eldest sister. They throw him away, lock him up, do something with him, and then have another child? Well, it is not uncommon for those who have lost a child to try to replace said child. So lost a daughter, make a daughter. Is it uncommon if the, the middle child murdered the other said <laughs> child? I haven't done a lot of studies in those cases. <laughs> I think, yeah, the research is lacking on that, but I'm willing to bet that you wouldn't instantly want to get busy and have another child. They said it was two years later, if that helps anything. It wasn't like six weeks later. No, I and I understand that, but I do feel like, if anything, that might lead to the decline of the marriage and they might split and go their separate yeah, ways. I, it's hard for me to imagine feeling in the mood again, knowing that your children are demon seeds. Uh, <laughs> Actually, you know, I thought they dropped that Lori was adopted, but I completely completely No, wrong. Lori was adopted by the Strohs. Correct. Her, who are realtors trying to unload the house where all this happens. Oh, right. They right. don't like have any problem like raising her around the corner. Nobody knows about this. I just and and I guess we're just to assume that the parents conveniently both died. And, it is said left. that they died after uh, like they died after Lori was born. A so several years after Michael was institutionalized, they both died for whatever reason, and Lori went up for adoption. Was adopted by the realtors, the Strodes, and then the Strodes didn't want Lorre to be all fucked in the head and had the record sealed. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, okay, I'm going to accept the premise because that's all that I can do. <laughs> Lori knows this, and yet she doesn't know this. It comes to her in a hazy opiate dream <laughs> after she has been drugged. Like, it's never occurred to her before, but suddenly, under heavy sedation... She's using the force at this point. <laughs> she has a out-of-body experience in which she is in the institution with this teenage Michael and he's staring at her and there's blood running and it's very arty and music video-y and... Don't we love the 80s? <laughs> suddenly she knows? She knows? Uh, does she remember that in fact... Does, does she snap out of it, wake up and realize everything that's happening? I was confused. I was thinking that that was a suppressed memory of her visiting Michael from her earlier youth. And she's suddenly remembering, oh, I know him. Mm -hmm. That's how I took it. So I'm watching the movie, and this little girl, this, this teenage boy, 12-year-old boy is in the chair. I have, what the hell is this? Because they don't tell you that she's related to him until after that scene. I mm -hmm. had no freaking clue who the little girl was, who the boy was. <laughs> I'm thinking, what is going on here? <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. And so I'm like, You didn't even really get that the little girl was little Lori? No, I didn't get that at all. Because it's, uh, how clear was it's not like she had a blue blanket with her in the hospital bed and is holding a blue blanket in the dream. They have no it connection. She's not yeah, wearing it happened so fast. I, I will forgive you for that lapse of connection because it happened so fast and it's so part of a dream sequence that could mean yeah. anything or nothing. It could have been a dream go, ballet for all I know. Oh, you know? it's just weird. You know, it just comes yeah. off as this very weird, creepy sequence. It's kind of what horror movies do to fill in the gaps when there's been too much of a lag and nothing has happened. There's like admitted. It's kind of something Hellraiser does a lot of. Yes, or The Ring, <laughs> you know, that whole movie. It just feels like, oh, here's a bunch of stylistic shots that create a horrific effect. It has nothing to do with anything. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> 
So and, anyway, it made sense later on when they revealed the whole thing. I was I had a uh, oh moment later on when I was right, watching. Right. I don't know. It. I I wish they had found a way to work it into the plot a little bit better. I know they were constrained because this all has to come out and the same night, the same night that all this is happening, she has to realize, oh, I'm actually the adopted of a homicidal maniac and i'm going to learn that while i'm recovering from my injuries and trying to flee him in a hospital ward do you think it was a result of plot or was jamie lee curtis just not available for the whole shoot that she was (laughs) in it so little because i'm trying to figure out you know obviously this was the role that made her famous and she'd gone on and done prom night and became a scream queen and whatnot but her return to halloween was it something she just did reluctantly and so they only got her for the climax and a few open hazes or was it that they injured her in the last one and so they just decided to spend the time on horny nurses instead i think you needed to establish characters that michael could kill and you weren't going to do that with Lori. i mean i understand why we spend time on the nurses that that's the tna factor that allows him to continue to be a fearsome character to us so that when he finally gets to Lori, and i think those scenes are effective when Lori's trying to outrun him in the hospital ward we're re- really there again and we realize how scary and how threatening it is it's and the fact that there happen to be no other patients yes there was one security guard for the whole place but to finish your point i don't know i don't know whether she didn't want to do it and they just put her in there as much as they could get her or whether just because she the story the plot and lot you know certainly they couldn't be adhering to logic i mean if they wanted to she could have fallen down the stairs and been totally fine right and not been in a hospital at all right she could just be a little bit shaken up and totally able to walk around right yeah, yeah so, they could write it however they want. They're the writers. So if they really wanted to, if they really had Jamie, I'm thinking if you had Jamie, you would have featured her more prominently. You wouldn't have had her limping around on drugs for most of the movie. That's my thought. That's why I brought it yeah, up. Yeah, I think you're right. Is that she was there as a favor. And after this, she went on to be, you know, legit do trading places and whatnot. So this was like her last bastion of horror for almost 20 years. Yeah. And for Carpenter, too, for the whole thing. I mean, there is an air to this movie in which uh, you get the sense that, well, we didn't really plan on doing this. But since we left it open ended and since we made so much money and since we're working with Dino De Laurentiis, who, you know, there's, you know, will leave no stone unturned. We're going to throw you this one bone, we're going to wrap it up, we're going to kill him off, and we're going to finally be done. And I do get the sense that they really thought that they were putting Michael Myers to bed. Oh, they did. And we'll talk about this more with Halloween 3. But the intent was that they would make a Halloween 3 when they did this. But this was the end of the Michael Myers story. And future Halloween movies would just be more anthology-like. Right. Right. Given all of that, I I go with the movie. Granting it a wide swath of, uh, well, that wasn't necessary. Once you get past the fact that it's redundant, I think you can still find a lot that's enjoyable. I do want to say, you mentioned the security guard and and the kill and how he's killed and all of that. Mm -hmm. Something that occurred to me during that sequence, even though I thought it was a pretty well set up and, and fairly suspenseful set up. We never have the same reaction as an audience member to seeing an authority figure and particularly a man in peril in the same way that we do with the nurses or certainly with Jamie Lee Curtis's character. Am I right about this? Do you ever care when a security guard or a cop (laughs) or a fireman or anybody walks into danger? And maybe I'm just speaking from an (laughs) anti-establishment place. Maybe I'm just, uh, you know, a screw the police kind of person. I'm really not. But 
why is it that we never care when the cop dies? I never but, care. My feeling is that that's there to establish power because a cop has authority over you. So if the killer has authority over a cop who has a gun, right. then he's really going to screw you over. I think you're right. It's not really about, oh, poor cop or anything like that. It's about taking away the one person that could to stop, stop this. Exactly. Yeah. There was okay. that one Friday the 13th movie, though, that had the cop that I didn't want to die. Do you remember that? Like the father who had oh, the yeah, blonde. Yeah. Uh-huh. That was six. That was, yeah. that was the one time I didn't want a cop to die that I can remember but I yep. think you're on to something but I, I think I think Arnie is dead on about that is that if the guy who can stop him can't stop him uh oh so that's yeah. exactly what it is because um, horror movies usually end when all the cops show up right and well, so if the cops are killed then right and Loomis, who is the authority figure that we know is going to live through this, or at least we believe he's going to live through all of this, uh, is being escorted out of town. Kind of a strange turn of events for him. After he kills, uh, the, the young man uh, inadvertently causes the young man to be killed, and they identify him through dental records as being just a teenager in an unfortunate mask. There's one person that shows up, and rather than assisting him in the efforts to reclaim Michael, they're like, ah, you're not needed here, and they're escorting him out of town. Why would well, you, you know, do Well, they said it was a public embarrassment, and the governor right. didn't want to get the sanitarium's name dirtied in the press with all the bad... The governor? I mean, Arnie, you and I have lived in Illinois. The governors are all scandal-ridden. I mean, if that's the worst... <laughs> yeah, I was laughing thinking it was Rod Blagojevich. <laughs> Rod Blagojevich doesn't want the Michael Myers press. Most of our governors end up behind bars. They would be relieved to have a scandal that takes it away from their own personal failing. I'm like, leave Donald Pleasance out there on the hook. Let him wriggle a little bit. You don't need to, like, mop this one up on the same night. I, I certainly didn't understand the logic of that. But I guess, again, that's just a way of taking away somebody that could help and making it just a story about one woman against one unstoppable evil. Well, don't forget, though, the one cop who could help him, the, the chief of police, his daughter died in the first movie, and they reference it here. I'm not sure if it's her dead. Actually, the actress came back to play the corpse. Man. She did. And that was what was so weird to me. I'm like, they come back for bit parts. It's the yeah. same sheriff and the same uh, Annie coming back to just essentially do one, one, a one-off scene. And they took him out after that. I did like that they showed the sheriff dealing with the death of his daughter. I thought yes. that was a good thing. We never see that in a horror movie is a parent finding out their kid is dead. Yes. I, yes. I would say the only thing that I wish that we had seen, particularly since he gets third billing, that sheriff is the third billed actor on the poster, <laughs> is that I feel like maybe he should have come back into it blinded by rage or anger. I mean, we do get the sense that there's a mob building. There's uh, some people, some parents that start stoning the house. House, the Myers house and growing up, uh, you know, building in the streets, unchained violence. I wish they had done something with him and or that mob in the end. But I, I think that would have required probably too much money. Now, I have a question. We had said earlier we were talking about Michael going to the hospital after his sister. Did Michael intend to go to the hospital? I mean, I realized he was in the back of that car. But did he know that the car belonged to a nurse? And I mean, really, did he know Lori was at the hospital? versus being questioned at the police station or something. I always kind of took it as grand coincidence that Michael happened to end up 
at a hospital and then he just decided, well, I'm here, I'll kill some people. I don't think so. And the reason why is that they established that Michael is walking around town square. There's lots of people there. There's lots of people that if he just wanted to target, he could attack. Uh, the fact that he follows a nurse and we know that she's a nurse from her paper hat, from her, <laughs> it's their paper hat. Exactly. Which that was another funny throwback when nurses actually wore those and not like fuchsia scrubs or whatever that they wear now. You know, it's, it's an entirely different look. It's a very old school look to this nursing uniform. Yes. He knows that it's not a Halloween costume and follows her to the hospital. I can only presume that he knows that Lori has been taken to the hospital. That's a very good point, Stuart, that it would been really funny if he followed a nurse who was just a girl in a Halloween costume. How cool that would have been. <laughs> that would have been, that, that been pretty funny, but I think it might have undercut the tension a little bit. Yeah, what bothered me was the fact that the nurse had just come from a party where I presume there was drinking and drugs, and yeah. now she's going to work at a hospital. I'm like, oh boy, I hope she's not my nurse. <laughs> yes. Why is the yes, third that, shift that nurse? got a whole lot of a malpractice practice cases just waiting <laughs> even before the killer walks down the unsecured halls and is you know draining blood and stealing scalpels and and hypos and sticking them in anyone that should walk by it's, yeah it's a real hornet's nest of legal <laughs> issues that we see going on there and did and, anyone else notice every single person at the hospital was like oh it's laurie strode it's like laurie <laughs> was really famous well the, you yeah. know that's that if that helped with the small town feel i mean never forget that haddonfield is a very rural environment it's one store one sheriff one i i appreciated that it made sense to me in some ways that it, it was an understaffed and and not much going on but, but still, it was a I thought, big hospital for a tiny town it was a big hospital for a tiny town it, it was actually a hospital in los angeles and built to accommodate the a, a populace as such it doesn't make sense that on halloween night they wouldn't have more people more lights on more people on call to deal with what's obviously you know a time of more accidents and medical need so i guess we should probably talk about the, the end. end yeah yeah i so the movie ends with michael trapping laurie in the hospital and dr loomis follows them there and they have a big old blowout dr loomis actually gets stabbed with michael's knife of choice which is a scalpel and then they had this interesting idea <laughs> that <laughs> the idea was interesting. The execution, not so much. Well, they turn on the gas. Uh, she, and she, not just the gas, every gas. Every Oxygen, gas in the room. Nitrogen, ether. ether. <laughs> I mean, like, how are they all standing up now? My like point it, exactly. No one has a, <laughs> seems to be affected by the effects of anything going right. well, on in there. Can we go back one moment first? Lori gets Loomis's gun, shoots yeah. twice, and one shot in each of Michael's eyes. Bull's eyes. Never shot a gun awesome. before in life. And yeah, but, the, but how else are you going to get those bloody tears running down his mask? It was awesome. Which was a great look, but... But still, the fact that two bullets, two eyes, and then Michael's it. just flailing around blindly. Which was cool that he was flailing yeah. around blindly. I thought that was really an effective look, that he was so intent to get her that he was just swinging, swinging, swinging. I thought that actually worked. Yes, how he got blinded. Wouldn't it have been better to throw some acid in his face? Maybe. But the shots, yeah. And, and the bloody tears. And the bloody yeah. tears were cool. You know, I, I thought that was neat. So 
but my problem with it, beyond the fact that she's an amazing shot for a first timer, <laughs> is that I was really surprised that she got out so quick, limping and, and in pain, that she wasn't drugged up by the any sort of gas in there, but that Loomis blows up in the room with Michael Myers. I could not believe he blew up and he let himself die. And I thought it was really cool that Michael came out walking on fire. I thought that was a really cool. I mean, clearly he was wearing a fireproof suit and big boots yes. and all that. Who cares, though? No, uh, I know. It, it was a really cool look. And then he dies. But blowing Michael Myers up in a hospital and then the whole rest of the hospitals and blow up either. Just that one room. Don't I, worry. Neither one of them is really dead. <laughs> Once you've established that you can't kill Michael Myers by shooting him, and if you really want to kill him off, the only thing left is fire. Chopping his head off might do it. Yeah, we'll get to that one, too. <laughs> oh, we will? spoil oh, it. Because when you said before that Donald Pleasance comes back in future sequels, I'm thinking, does he look like Freddy Krueger? Because how is he possibly going to do that? He's not supernatural at all. But don't you know what? Don't tell me. I don't want you to tell me. I want to find out for myself. Well, how much is it perfect, though? I I mean, it's just so in all kinds of literature things that when you have somebody obsessed with something, the way Pleasance was obsessed with Michael, right. that that he dies achieving that goal. I mean, this goes back to Lord of the Rings and Gollum jumping off to get the ring. You know, it's it's that l- type of obsession. And at that point, that's what Loomis had become is so obsessed that he would die to take Michael with him. Yeah, there was a strange mirroring and that they both seemed to need each other in some way. I mean, Sam Loomis clearly must have had other cases, other patients, other things to attend to. And the fact that he spent all of that, all his energy and time personally without being compensated, in fact, defying the law to apprehend and face down Michael, there was really only one way for him to end up. Unfortunately, they keep doing it again and again and again, as as, as we're going to see in future podcasts. So, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Halloween 2? Stuart. You know, I do. I I was surprised because I don't remember this one being particularly great, but I was surprised at how much I enjoyed it and how many of the elements that I liked about Halloween carried over. We've talked a lot about what doesn't carry over, what's overinflated, what doesn't work. But I still think that if you're in the mood for this genre, it's not going to convince you if, you, if you're not. But uh, if you've seen Halloween and you want to continue, you can go to this one. Arnie. You know, one thing we didn't talk about with this one was the score. And that was what I said was one of the best things about the first movie. And here they've really synthed it up and they screwed up not only so much else of what made the first one artful, but they even screwed up the score. (laughs) But that said, you know, like Stuart said, this is still better than the majority of slasher films out there. It's far more typical. If the first film has art going for it, what this one has going for it is competency. And, you know, it's got a lot more gore. They really upped the blood. We talked in the last one how the last one was bloodless. Here there's red paint everywhere. It looks like quite obviously Ace Hardware brand red paint. But... You know, it, it, it's Ace Hardware and not Home Depot. <laughs> exactly. Wow. I don't think there was a Home Depot in 1983. You're probably right on that one. <laughs> so I'm thinking that it's it's a competent movie. It's enjoyable. It I didn't find myself as bored. By the same token, it, it's no great shake. So I just come in on the side of recommendation if you're the type of person who likes this kind of film already. And you know, I complained a lot about different things in this movie that did not carry over from the first one and how it did try to carry over a lot. And you know, the, the, it began with the Sandman, the end with Mr. Sandman. So it had a lot of things going for it 
that made a lot of sense or a lot of fun. This one, I was more nitpicky on the, the details because it didn't allow me to get so lost in the characters and the plots and the ideas and the suspense and the whole thing. That being said, I did find myself having a good time watching it overall. So I do recommend it, especially as based on what Arnie said, you know, we watched a lot of sequels in the past of other horror movies. And I got to say, this is one of the better sequels out there to a horror movie. But don't get me wrong. This is very much a sequel with all the trappings that come with that label. So yeah, you can do worse than watch this one. I recommend it. Go right ahead and have a good time. So I want to thank you all for listening to us today for Now Playing. If you enjoyed listening to the show, please go to www.nowplayingpodcast.com and download more shows to listen. We have other series there that you can follow along with us with. And also, if you like what you're hearing, please go to iTunes and leave a review for us so other people like yourself can find us and listen as well. Or people different than you. Or, or people who are completely different than me, yes. <laughs> Good point, Arnie. Um, you can go to our homepage and find links to our forums where we discuss these movies. And if you want to leave us an email, you can do so at show at nowplayingpodcast.com. I want to thank Stuart and Arnie for joining me today. Thank you. And we'll be joining you for our next movie in the series, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Two more days till Halloween, Halloween, No, Halloween. eight more days till Halloween 3. <laughs> Silver Shamrock. What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Now Playing's Halloween Retrospective. It's all over, my friend. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can listen to our other installments, as well as our Friday the 13th, House of a Thousand Corpses, Terminator, and Star Trek Retrospective series at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production and is not affiliated with Compass International, Universal Pictures, Galaxy International Pictures, Dimension Films, Miramax Films, or The Weinstein Company. Michael Myers and all other Halloween characters and situations are copyright and trademarks of those companies and no infringement is intended. And Arnie, host of Star Wars Action News, the Star Wars Collecting Podcast, you can find at SWActionNews.com, as well as Republic Forces Radio Network, season two of the Clone Wars coming soon at RepublicForces.com. Happy to be back on Now Playing Talking Halloween. You know, Arnie, <laughs> sometimes you remind me of those medical commercials where like people are like playing in the park and, you know, petting their dog and they're talking about all of the the things that the drug could do to you, like <laughs> make your bowels bleed and your eyeballs roll out of your head. And dry mouth. It's like it's like there's like this this nice cadence to like the way you say it but at the same time i'm just like what did you just say and is it good <laughs> i thought he's gonna end it now on power 95 right 5.5 fm <laughs> <laughs>